she's not wrong about how many how many pages I was at. I just had to just had to stop. You know, we didn't have service last week. I thought, okay, I got all kinds of time. I can just take some more. And I spent 45 minutes on a rabbit trail of who first said misery loves company. And I went, why am I doing this? Back. Let's go back. Let's go back to it. So, so we're gonna we're gonna break this into into two. So, first of all, welcome everybody. Glad that you guys are here out there online, wherever you are. Um, so blessed that you're joining us, Pastor Paphras and your congregation. By the way, uh, I got a message from Pastor Paphras in Tanzania that their congregation is is desperately in need of a new projector to show the. I, I think primarily our messages on their screen. So just let's lift them up in prayer. Uh, Father, I just pray for provision and everything that that church needs, that they would have everything they need to forward your gospel message in the place that you have put them. Ask that you bless them. We lift them up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, I know God's going to provide for them. They are so faithful. Um, but, but you guys are faithful too. You're here. I am so excited. I'm going to say it to share this message with you. Um, we are in... Um, there's only two more messages left in this, well, three now that we're, we cut this in two. And I, kinda, I hope that you've kind of enjoyed along the way learning that the struggles that the first century church dealt with, the things they dealt with, are kind of the same things we deal with. And maybe, maybe enjoyed is the wrong way to say that. You know, maybe it's just been encouraged knowing that what we go through is the same things that other people have gone through. That's where I went down the rabbit trail of Misery Loves Company. Because um, it's kind of it's it's encouraging to know that you're not the only one that struggles with certain things. That's part of why being the body of Christ and coming together is encouraging for us. Just to see, I may not be able to solve your problems, but knowing that, hey, we all, we all have the same kinds of issues. Uh, is helpful, and, and even more helpful than that, knowing that the Word of God has the answers to the issues and the things that we struggle with, the ultimate authority, in fact. So many things have changed since the time of Paul. Uh, think about, like, I mean, you don't have to think very hard to think about the things that have changed. Like, what are a couple of the biggest things? Just culture in general, right? Um, Technology has changed the entire landscape of the planet, but even with how radically different it seems like it is today from where it was 2,000 years ago, um, think about some important things that haven't changed. Human nature. Human nature is the same today as it was then. Um, How about Satan's nature? How about God's nature? Human nature, Satan's nature, God's nature have not changed. That's been the same since the beginning of time. And if our problems and issues today are the same as they were 2,000 years ago, 3,000, 5,000 years ago, as far back as you want to go, but they're just repackaged in a more modern way, let's say, shouldn't we go back and look at the source of that conflict Find out where this source happened. And, and we realize if we do that, that it's not society in general. It's not the people on the other side of the political aisle. It, it, that's not the source of all this conflict. It's a continuation of a battle. 
that's been raging since the very beginning. We go back, the very first indication that we are going to have a battle in this life goes back to when? Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden. I mean, we're going to go all the way back to there. They were at peace. They were walking. They were having a great time in the garden, and then conflict entered. But along with that conflict comes a promise. Genesis 3.15, it's our very first, just kind of set the tone here. God says, and I will make enemies of you and the woman. He's talking to the snake representing Satan. I will make enemies of you and the woman and your offspring and her descendant. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, for those of you wanna, who want to feel like real like Bible brains, Kayla, right? You may even know this term. What? There's a term. It's a Latin term for that scripture. And it's proto-evangelium. Proto-evangelium is Latin for the first gospel. And gospel, of course, we know means good news. So how can God in the garden saying, you, snake, Satan, and her descendants and your descendants, we're going to be at war for a long time. How does that seem like good news? It seems like Adam and Eve are being punished, really. And in a way, they are. But at the same time, it's a promise. It's a promise from God saying, Satan, you will not win the fight over my children. It's not going to happen. And it's a promise going back to the beginning, but it's also the first promise of a battle to come. We're going to be in a fight, but also then a savior to battle with us, to battle alongside of us. So if we fast forward then to the times of Paul, a few, few millennia from whenever that interaction happened to the first century followers of Jesus Christ. Anybody know what they were called at the time? They weren't called Christians quite yet. The way or followers of the way. And being a follower of the way was illegal. It was illegal to be a follower of the way, especially in the, in the entire Roman Empire. Um, but in some cases, it was tolerated as long as it was kept very quiet. And the church in Ephesus, which is who we're talking about here now, maybe they had a little bit more freedom to worship openly because of where they were and all the different uh, cults and temples that were going on in Ephesus. But they were still subject to Roman law and the emperor's whims, and if they got too big or too boisterous or too much out in the open, they would be crushed down quickly and ruthlessly. And so how could they, in that setting, ever hope to stand up and do battle with their Roman oppressors? <clears throat> so they're reading scripture that talks about, we are victorious, we win, we're victors, and they're hearing this preaching that we win this battle, but all they have to do is look out the window and go, how do we fight that? How do we fight this giant Roman army? They had no army. They had no budget. They had no fortresses. They had nothing. But what they had was far better than any power that the world had ever known. 
and they just needed to be reminded of it. That's where we are here as we talk about. So this week, we're Ephesians 6. 10 to 17 is the whole armor of God section. We're going to get as far as we get today. Probably going to break it in half somewhere. But that's where we are. And this passage is basically, the, it's at the end of Ephesians for a reason. It's the culmination of everything that Paul has taught the church in Ephesus. Here's all the theology that you need to know. Here's all the doctrine you need to know. Now, here's how to live this in your life. But you're going to face resistance. You're going to be in a battle. So in order to do that, I need to remind you that you have a weapon and you have armor that is far more powerful than anything that's going to come against you. So the setting is this. Paul's writing this letter. We've talked about it while he's under house arrest. Okay, he's been arrested many, many times. This one is one of the more comfortable, if you will. He's writing this letter while he's under house arrest. And under house arrest, the way that it worked there is since they didn't have bars and you weren't in a literal cell, you were chained to a Roman guard. You were literally, not figuratively, you were literally attached to a Roman guard who would follow you everywhere all the time. Every moment, Acts 28, 16, just kind of accounts that when we entered Rome, this is when Paul actually arrived in Rome. Remember, he's been shipwrecked. He's had all these things happen on his way to being under house arrest. When he entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. It's just a little by-the-way passage, but that describes exactly what happened. And while he's writing these epistles to the various churches and having people come in and he's ministering to them and giving them messages to take off and, and do all these things, he's also witnessing to the guards who were assigned to be with him. Think about that. You're literally chained to one of the most powerful followers of Christ that there had been at that time. And He's writing these letters and he's ministering to people and he's talking to them. And you're a Roman guard and you're just standing there and you're overhearing all of this. It had to have an effect, right? We know that it does. Philippians 1, 12 and 13. Paul says something about this. He's like, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the Praetorian Guard. And to everyone else. In other words, these Praetorian guards, which were, by the way, the elite guards of the time, um, they were not only hearing this, hearing the gospel message, but they were going back and telling the other Praetorian guards about this. And so Paul is saying, look, none of this is for waste. This has actually been great. I'm telling them. They're hearing it. I'm not even preaching to them. They're just hearing it. And they're going back and sharing it. Here's an image of kind of Picture this. Not actual photo, but that's probably very much what it was like. Paul's writing letters, he's talking to people, and a guard literally chained to him, which means he was constantly looking over his shoulder or, or whatever it was. Also notice, though, how's the guard dressed? He is in full armor. Praetorian guards were never, ever without full armor. Every day, Paul would see Roman soldiers like this get dressed in full armor in order to come and babysit him. 
He wasn't offering resistance. He didn't put up a fight. He didn't have weapons. But every single day, they diligently prepared. They got up, they put on their armor, all of their armor, and they came and they stood watch over him as if they were going into a battle. Again, even though Paul never gave them any indication that they were going to. But they never knew also when they were going to be called to repel an attack. If something happened, if, if Rome came under attack, if there was an uprising, if something happened, they would be called and they had to be ready. It wasn't a matter of, well, then I'll just go back and put on my armor and get ready and then go join the battle. Every day they prepared for battle as if it were imminent. And Paul also would have looked out the window of his, they call it an apartment. It's basically like a little condo that he lived in. It's, you know, some people just call it a home, but he literally lived in downtown Rome, like right in the shadow of the forum. That's where he lived. And he would have looked out the window, seeing guards marching up and down the streets of Rome, guards guarding the Roman forum right there. And he would have been thinking about that picture as he thought about the words of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah was actually the first one who talked about an avenging savior. Isaiah 59, 17, he said, he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head and he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a cloak. Now there he's talking about, about an avenging savior coming in. But this is the image that Paul has in his mind. Here's an actual picture. See, in the background, that's the Roman Forum. And in the front, you can kind of see it down underneath the trees, how well the picture is. But that is actually what they consider to be, that was probably Paul's apartment, Paul's home where he stayed. So he would look out the window, he couldn't leave, but he'd look out the windows every day and see the parade and see all the formality of the Roman soldiers going on. And that setting is what inspired him to write this passage, the passage we're going to read for you today, and talk about the way that Christians need to prepare for battle every day. Because you never know when it's coming. You only know that it is coming. So we're in Ephesians 6, 10 to 17. I'm going to read the whole thing. We're only going to get through what we get through when we start taking it apart, but I'm gonna read the whole thing for you. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist the evil on that day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having belted your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having strapped on your feet the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish, extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. All right, how many people have heard that passage or a teaching on it at least once? Five times? Ten times? Cheryl, how many times have you heard a teaching on the armor of God? Hundreds of times probably in your lifetime, right? Here's this, an image that you commonly see, the full armor of God, okay? 
and a thousand versions of it, probably all of us have at least got a basic understanding. But let me ask you this. Could you articulate to yourself or maybe let's say a brand new Christian, could you articulate exactly what it means to have your waist belted with truth? If somebody asked you, what does it mean? It says, put on the full armor of God, belt my waist with truth. Okay, what do I do? We all take it and read it and go, hey, sounds great. How do we live it though? Because the Roman soldiers lived it. Paul is telling them, live it. Don't just know it as some abstract concept. Live it. How do you do it? And then better yet, (laughs) having strapped on your feet the preparation of the gospel of peace. Did we all do that this morning? What does it mean? Maybe you did, but do you really understand what it means? Maybe some of us do. And I apologize by speaking as if none of us have any clue. But I'll be honest with you, I've read this a thousand times and I go, sounds great. Moving on. Studying it, though, makes it come to life. So the better question is, how exactly do you do it? And then maybe just as important, how do you know if that piece of your spiritual armor is lacking and needs to be strengthened? How? That's what we're going to talk about. And if you stay with me, there's going to be a lot. I know it. But if you stay with me, my heart, my desire is that you will understand not only how to do it and stand against what the enemy throws at us, but you will be able to help someone who is struggling in the same way. That's always my, always my heart. So if we could summarize the last few chapters that we've been teaching on in Ephesians, it'd be Paul's own words. Ephesians 4, 1 to 3, he kind of opens up that whole chapter. Therefore, I, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you, with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. All right, so he's saying that this is what this is all about. I want you to be able to go out and do this. But the logical question then is how can we live like that in a world that's generally hostile towards us? How do we do that? We'll be, we'll be eaten alive if we go out as sheep among lions for the slaughter. But Paul's got the answer to that that's going to serve followers of Christ well until the day he returns. Not Paul, Christ. So let's get into it. Ephesians 6.10. Let's look at it line by line and really understand what this means. Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We're going to do a couple of Greek lessons. Not heavy on Greek, but we're going to do a couple. The word strong is endunimo. And endunimo The definition is to empower or to impart ability. It's not your own power. It doesn't come from within. It's an external source of power coming to you. It's a passive verb. So be strong in the Lord, meaning accept his strength, reflect his strength, use his strength. And just something important to understand is that Christians cannot empower themselves in a spiritual battle. You can work out, you can be strong, you can do a lot of things, but you cannot empower yourself. That power comes from the Holy Spirit only. 
Christian life is not a playground. It's a battlefield, and we have to be ready. The solution then to all this is, like Paul observed in the Roman guards, prepare every day because you know a battle is coming. Ephesians 6.11, put on the full armor of God so you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Put on is, is, is more Greek, and it's, it sounds like the first one, but it's enduo, and it means become one with. It's the idea of like just immersing yourself in it, becoming a part of it. Full armor is panoply, panoply in Greek, and panoply just means a complete set. So you don't just put on the pieces that you think you might need for that day. You put it on, you put on the entire set because you don't know where the enemy's coming at you or how he's coming at you. 2 Corinthians 10.4, Paul says, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Now, some translations use the word strongholds. Have you heard that before? Strongholds. What exactly is a stronghold? I think we have it here. In the Greek, I don't know how to even pronounce that, but we'll try Okaroma. In Okaroma, the definition is a false argument in which a person seeks shelter against reality. It's a false argument. And most strongholds, most false arguments come directly from the lips of Satan. And we believe them because it gives us comfort it gives us defense, and in some cases, even the accusations give us reason to just back away. I'll just sit in, my, sit in my room, and I'll be quiet. I won't trouble anybody. But that's a false, it's a lie. So question, can anyone think of an instance, maybe let's go to modern culture today, where someone has used a false argument as a shelter against dealing with reality? Only all the time? Every day? We're not fighting a battle against soldiers, against tanks, against fortresses. And we're not even arguing against logic. Because a logical argument, most of us would do pretty well. But it's got nothing to do with that. Ephesians 6.12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. This is where some, some translations use the word principalities. Ever heard that term? It's another one of those. How do I articulate what a principality is? If you think of principality, I'm thinking like Monaco. Monaco is a principality. That's not what he's talking about here. And we're not going to take time right now today to dig into those individual adversaries, the principalities, the powers, the rulers. These are things many of us have heard messages on before. And we'll do that again at some point. But the thing is, only the Holy Spirit can remove the blinders from your eyes so that we can see who the true enemy is. And we need that. So here's what Elisha did. Remember the prophet Elisha? Here's what he did in a time when he was, he was kind of making some trouble. He had really irritated the king by seeing into his crystal ball and his plans. 
And the king was irritated. And so the king finally sent an army to, to find and to kill Elisha. And Elisha had taken shelter in his, in his hometown. Here's an image. Look at that. And, and there are no actual images of this. But this is the one that just most represented. You can see all the tents and the approaching army down below. Elisha is up on the wall. This picks up in 2 Kings 6. Read 2 Kings 6 if you want the whole story here. But now, they had, gone, they had gone to this city, their fortress. They had gone, leave that image back up for a minute if you could. They'd gone there, they'd gone to bed, and everything seemed okay. They're thinking like, hey, maybe, maybe we're going to be safe here inside the walled city. And they wake up in the morning, and the attendant looks out. Now when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servants said to him, this is hopeless, my master. What are, we to do? what are we to do? And he said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, Lord, please open his eyes so that he may see. And the Lord opened his servant's eyes, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. This is what we have. We hear in Scripture talking where, where demons say, we are legion. We are everywhere. But greater are those who are with us. Just think of that image and about thinking every time that you face a battle, there are more angel armies with you. Christ is with you. The Holy Spirit is with you. There's more with you and surrounding you than you can possibly imagine. But if you acknowledge it and you know it's there, you can step into a battle with confidence. It doesn't make it easy, but it gives you confidence that you are going to win. Let's go. You can take that down. Ephesians 6.13. Therefore, here we go, into the meat of this, take up the full armor of God so you will be able to resist on the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm. And it says take up the full armor. It doesn't say go make your own. You just have to accept it. It's there. Accept it and use it. When a Roman soldier went into the army when he was conscripted or when, or when, he, or when he enlisted, he was given a full suit of armor. That was his. He had to take care of it. He had to make sure he maintained it, polished it, everything. You just have to accept it and use it. Don't leave it at home because it's inconvenient. No Roman soldier ever went, well, we're just, we're just going to train today and it's going to be hot, so I'm going to leave the breastplate at home. I'm going to leave the helmet at home because I'm only going to take my sandals and, and my belt. That's all I'm going to take. They never said that. And we shouldn't either because we never know when we're going to be in a spiritual battle. We only know that we are going to be. So the question is, what's a spiritual battle look like? I want to throw this out to you guys. Give me some examples. What is a spiritual battle that you'll face today or tomorrow if you haven't already? What's one look like? What? Traffic. Good. She's not wrong. Work. Yeah? What else? Television. You guys are tracking. I love you guys. You are tracking. I expected you to go, well, when you face a non-believer who's going to be in your... Yes, those are. 
or the lies of Satan wanting to keep you quiet. Those are all the classic spiritual battles that we talk about. But I put down things like watching television, going to the movies, going out in public, going to work, water cooler conversations at work, listening to the news, going for a walk in the park with your dog, daydreaming. All of those are battlegrounds. And those are all places where Satan can come at you. And so if you think, all I'm going to do is go for a walk in the park with my dog, therefore, I don't need to worry about any of that armor stuff. Yes, you do. Because Satan will come at you when he wants to, not when you decide you're ready. We have to put on the full armor every day. We can't wait until we think we're going to be in a battle. Let's talk about now with the individual pieces of armor. Okay, we're going to go into what those look like. I'm going to talk about what they are, how you know that piece is, is maybe lacking or needs some work, and how you can do that. All right? So, and at the end of the message next week, I'm going to summarize it all again. But here we go. The first one, Ephesians 6.14. Stand firm, therefore, having belted your waist with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Let's talk about the first part. Belt your waist with truth. Some translations say gird your loins. Anybody gird their loins today? <laughs> what it was was more of like an apron kind of thing. It was, it was like a belt, but a harness apron kind of thing that went on, and all the other pieces of armor attached to it. Okay, so they would have like a tunic on underneath. They would put on, they would put on this belt and then tuck the pieces of the tunic that hung low. They would tuck them in to the belt so it didn't get down in their feet. But what this means, what it means for us practically, the belt of truth, it means the knowledge of and belief in biblical truth. That's exactly what that means. It's the foundation that all other armor rests on. If you do not believe what the Bible says, you're in trouble from the get-go. We need to do that. It doesn't change with culture. It doesn't change with opinions. It doesn't change with emotions. The belt of truth, okay? And you'll know that your belt of truth is lacking when. This is important. You could be made to question what you believe is true and can provide no logical argument for what you believe. Anybody ever run into a very well-spoken, maybe well-versed non-believer who can run circles around all your arguments, tarry into doing apologetics. That's a big part of what you do, right? We run into people like this all the time. Let me give you an example of what this looks like. I had an interaction with a guy that called himself a shaman, okay? A, a, he, he said he was a Native American shaman, but he had pentagrams. Um, he had all the trappings, and I had an interaction with him, and I was asking him specifically about the pentagram. He goes, I'm not, I'm not demonic, I'm just a shaman. And I go, well, what about, what about the pentagram? And his response to me is, he goes, Jesus used a pentagram in his ministry. I see some heads like, huh? But he goes, yeah. He goes, you know, I'm very well studied. I've, I've taken classes. I've got degrees in, in history. And I know that Jesus used a pentagram in his ministry. Now, if I didn't know better 
or was a little bit more meek about what I believed, I might have gone, oh, I got nothing to say to that. Okay, I didn't know that. The truth is, if you know, and now you will, that in the early Christian church, I'm talking about second and third century, the pentagram was used, not by Christ, but by Christians to illustrate the wounds of Christ. Head, hands, feet. And it was used for a very, very short time, but then eliminated entirely in favor of the cross because of its pagan ties, okay? So yes, very short period, this is what the enemy does. There's a slight element of truth, and he takes it to an extreme. This is why we need to have the belt of truth firmly around us. We need to, and I don't expect everybody to know, oh, here's the history of where the pentagram came from. I don't expect you to know that, but I expect it to resonate with the spirit in you. That doesn't sound right. And I'm not just going to say, oh, okay, all right then. Let's find out. Take some time. Everybody's got the most powerful computer known to man in your hand. You can look these things up. Don't just take somebody's word for it. That's the belt of truth. And you can strengthen your belt of truth by as much as possible. Here's how, if your belt of truth is lacking, here's how to strengthen it. As much as possible, immerse yourself in the word and surround yourself with people that you can learn from, people that you can talk to. Not everybody has somebody at work that they could just go, hey, uh, did you know, what do you think about the whole pentagram thing? But if you have somebody you can talk to, who is a Christian, who can help you understand these things? They go, I don't know, but it doesn't sound right. Let's find out. Learn to recognize counterfeits and lies by knowing the real thing, knowing what the real thing feels like. That's how you strengthen your belt of truth. The second piece of armor in that same scripture, having belted your waist with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Okay, somebody said, how do I put on the breastplate of righteousness? How do you do that? Sounds good, sounds important. How do we do it? The breastplate is the big piece, the big classical piece with all the designs the big, like that the fits over their entire chest. It protects the heart and the lungs and the vital organs, and it's often very decorated. It's important to know that Paul's not talking about the righteousness of Christ in us. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about personal integrity. Personal integrity is what he's talking about. The practical, everyday, personal righteousness that Christians should exhibit. And what this means is living a life of integrity that leaves no opening for accusation. If you live your life in a way that you know you should, there's very little room for people to come at you. But as soon as you have those things in your life that you're hiding, that you're not proud of, this is how you know it's lacking. When your moral character and reputation are not something you're proud of, when you feel like a phony witnessing to other people about Christ. And because you feel like a phony, you don't. Who am I to talk about this when my own life is a mess? There are parts of your life that you don't want your church friends to see. Anybody have those things that they segment? This is, this is for me. This is for my church face. 
my church family. If there are things like that in your life, then you are vulnerable. Then you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable to battles because the enemy knows your secrets and will use them against you. At that moment that you have a chance to witness, at that moment where someone's coming at you, the enemy will bring those up to your head and you'll say, you know what? Maybe they're right. Maybe I am a phony. Maybe this isn't real. And you back away because the enemy knows your secrets. So if you want to strengthen your breastplate of righteousness, what you do is lined out in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 7.1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let's cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. How do we do that? How do you cleanse yourself from all defilement? I promise you, most of you right now have an understanding of what the word defilement is. And if there are things in your life, things in your home, things in your phone, things in your mind, things in your heart that don't belong there, get rid of them. It's that easy. Get rid of them. Don't say, it's okay to have that app on my phone. I just won't use it. Get rid of the temptation. Remove the app. It's okay if I go to Hooters for lunch. I'm just picking a place, okay? Never been there, full disclosure. But it's okay that I go because they have the best chicken wings. I don't go for the other reason. Don't go there. That's defilement. And that's wrong. You should not be there. That's what it looks like. And then, probably the most important way, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous so that he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. It comes from confessing. You confess to one another. You confess to your spouse, to your parent, to your best friend, but most of all, confess them to the Lord and say, these things I know don't belong there. I confess them to you and I want your help taking them away because no one can do that for you. No one can stand out. I know so many parents probably some in this room who have said, we're going to put safeguards in place on your phone and on the computer and on this and on that so that you can't get in to any of those things that you shouldn't. Well, guess what? They will find a way. There's always a way. And they will find it if you haven't set the foundation that you need to stay away from those things because, not just because I said so, no one else can do it for you. All right, let's move on to the next piece. Ephesians 6.15, and having strapped on your feet the preparation of the gospel of peace. So this third part is the sandals of the gospel of peace. It's, it's worded several different ways in scripture. But what they looked like, Roman sandals, they called them caligae. And this is, it's kind of hard to see the picture, but the thing I want you to see is on the bottom. You see all those spikes? Those are nails, and Roman soldiers would take their issued sandals and they would pound nails into the bottom of them to give them firm footing because in battle, I don't know if you've ever worn pure flat bottom like dress shoes or something. If it's slippery, that slippery leather does not offer an awful lot of traction. So they would pound nails into the bottom of them <coughs> to give them 
solid footing because it was essential in battle that you had solid footing. Now, Paul's, Paul's not talking about the gospel of peace like sharing the gospel. He's talking about understanding and embracing the gospel, okay? The gospel of peace, operating on a solid footing of certainty of the gospel of peace. So what's the gospel of peace? The gospel of peace is the understanding that at one time, we were at odds with God. Scripture tells us we were enemies of God. Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we should be saved by his life. Understand that once you were at odds with God, but no longer through Jesus, no longer Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? If you embrace that and understand it, it gives you confidence and solid footing going into any battle. That's what the sandals of the gospel of peace is about. And you'll know that your sandals of the gospel of peace are lacking or need shored up when you spend most of your time trying to earn God's approval. Trying to earn God's favor rather than understanding you already have it. Live like you do. Don't spend all your time saying, I need to please God by doing this. I need to please him by doing this. And I know it won't please him if I do that, but eh. you have God's favor. You are a child of God. Live like it and understand it and embrace it. And that's what having the firm foundation of the gospel of peace. It's not peace with the world, it's God's peace with you. And if he is for you, who can be against you? If you constantly tell yourself that you're unworthy of God's love, you need to shore up the gospel of peace in your heart. If you see the Father as angry and judgmental, that's an indication that you need to shore up the gospel of peace, the, the sandals, the foundation in your life. And you can strengthen it by identifying the lies that you're believing about your worthiness to be loved. Our entire deliverance ministry is based on the idea of getting rid of those lies that you believe that make you think that you're unworthy of God's love. That maybe someday I'll be there, but I'm not there yet. And once you know those lies, you counter them with God's truth. And you believe the promises in the Bible. You believe that they're for you and they're about you and they're to you. And if you struggle with those things, you need to work on that. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so many more scriptures that talk about that. We have to embrace that. That is our foundation. That is our firm footing for everything else that we do. I'm going to stop now. Next week, we're going to pick up where we left off with the rest of the parts of the armor of God. But I want to finish it like this. We, again, we are promised, not that someday, if you're ever in an attack, God's going to be there for you. We are promised that we will be under attack. If you're a Christian, that's a promise that you're going to go through some crap today and tomorrow and the day after. 
So do you leave your armor in the closet and just go, I'll get it out when I feel an attack coming on? Or better yet, when I'm under attack, I'll just run home and get that armor and then come back. Peter 5.8, 1 Peter 5.8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That someone is you. And we have to get up every morning and be intentional about making sure that every part of our armor is intact and we know how to use it and we can recognize when we need to work on it. The most effective way to lose a battle is to not know you're in one. You've been given everything you need to win this battle by the one who gave everything for you. All right, next week we're gonna continue with part two on the armor of God. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that knowing what we would face in this life, you made a way. You made the only way for us to face this life. And Lord, I just pray that in the times that we are lacking in our understanding, lacking in our use, lacking in the effectiveness of our armor, that you remind us that you gave us everything we need to stand and we just need to use it. We need to make sure that armor's in good shape and we need to use it. And so, Lord, we are thankful that the very first, very first gospel spoken in the Garden of Eden all that long ago was a promise for them and it was a promise for us today. And Lord, we accept that promise. Help us to live strong. Help us to be prepared for the things that we come against in this world. And help us to help the others around us to see where they may be lacking in parts of their armor and to help them Help them strengthen those parts because that's what the body of Christ does. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to go into communion now. Um, I think I recognize everybody. You know how we do communion here. We'll have a station over here and a station over there. Um, I think uh, Jim and Sandy are going to serve over on this side. Gabe and I will be over here. We have prayer team in the back. If you need prayer for anything. Maybe you just want to go back and take this time and pray for, um, pray for the worldwide church. Pray for Discover Community Church. Pray for Israel. Take time and do that. You can do that during worship. Then following worship immediately, we'll gather up front here and it will be the time for healing prayer that we'll set aside. And you can stay as long as you want or as little as you want, but take advantage of that. Like Gabe said, Pretty much everybody, anybody here has nothing going on health-wise in their lives? Probably not. Take some time. Take some time, and let's see what the Holy Spirit can do, the power of Christ in you. And they'll be up front here. So see Sandy. Sandy, raise your hand in case anybody doesn't know you. See her, and she'll kind of tell you how that all works after service. All right, so let's, let's move around and take communion together. Thank you, guys.